0: We'll see you at the 36th Miami Book Fair, November 17th through the 24th. Hundreds of authors and books for every age and interest will be there. Readings and discussions with featured authors like Ambassador Samantha Power, Debbie Harry, George Will, John Waters, Richard Russo, and others including Harper's Magazine editor Christopher Beha with Joyce Carol Oates. Learn more at miamibookfair.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. On April 18th of this year, a redacted version of Robert Mueller's report on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election was released. Since then, the 448-page report has become a best-selling book, even though it's available for free online, and been performed live with John Lithgow playing Donald Trump. But because the report didn't conclusively reveal collusion and only elusively referred to obstruction on the part of the Trump administration, nothing became of it. So today, November 13th, when the first televised impeachment hearings about Trump's quid pro quo with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky are being broadcast, it seems apt to revisit the Mueller report, back when it was relatively new. On May 13th, Harper's Magazine organized a discussion about the report's implications between four experts that was moderated by our publisher and president, John R. MacArthur. It's a fascinating
1: conversation,
0: and one that might temper the myopia created by the drama of today's hearings.
1: I have to say a word about the text before we get into the conversation about the the impeachment. And that is that these government reports are books I mean, if you read if you read the CIA torture report, for example, Feinstein's uh, committee report, the book had a voice. It has a voice. It's not great literature, but this book has a voice. There is uh, some occasional uh, moments of irony, and if you start, if you really read it carefully, you will find amazing gems that I have not seen reported anywhere in the press, and the one that jumped out at me uh, uh, the other day when I was reading it was uh, uh, early on when we were talking about, uh, about uh, the, the pre-Mueller uh, appointment period. Um, I'm just very quickly, the president opened the conversation by saying quote I don't have a lawyer. The president expressed anger at Begon about the recusal of Sessions and brought up Roy Cohn stating that he wished Cohn was his attorney. McGahn inter- interpreted this comment as directed at him, suggesting that Cohn would fight for the president, whereas McGahn would not. Now, this is uh, an interesting moment in the, in, the, in the narrative. And if you stay with it and read it straight through, I guarantee that it will illuminate your understanding of what's going on, what's at stake here. But fortunately tonight, I have four distinguished panelists who are going to tell us what's really at stake. Uh, And I'm gonna start on my left with Elizabeth Holtzman, hardly needs an introduction. (laughs) Uh, The former member of the United States House of Representatives, she was the first woman to hold the office of New York City Comptroller, and the first woman to serve as as District Attorney of Kings County. Uh, In 1974, Holtzman was one of the Judiciary Committee members who recommended three articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal. Her most recent book is The Case for Impeaching Trump. Uh, Brenda Wineapple is author, uh, she lives in the neighborhood, by the way, uh, is author of the recently released, critically acclaimed book, The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson, and The Dream of a Just Nation as well as several other books, including Ecstatic Nation, named a Best Book of the Year by the New York Times, White Heat, a finalist for the NBCC Award, and Hawthorne, winner of the Ambassador Award for Best Biography. Her essays, articles, and reviews have appeared in many publications, and she teaches in the MFA programs at Columbia University and the New School. Karen Greenberg, a noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties, is director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, where she teaches courses on post 9-11 national security law and policy. Greenberg is the author of Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State, and the editor-in-chief of the daily National Security News Roundup, how do you pronounce that, the Sufan Group, Morning Brief, mm-hmm. and the weekly Strows or Strauts? Strauss? Strauss Friedberg Cyber Brief. Her other publications include The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First Hundred Days, a Washington Post best book of 2009, The Torture Papers, The Road to Abu Ghraib, co edited with Josh Dreytel, who's in the audience, Uh, The Collection, The Torture Debate in America, The Terrorist Trial Report Guard. Shall I go on? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay. She's got a book of essays coming out from Cambridge University Press in the fall. James Oakes is an American historian. He's a distinguished professor at CUNY, at the CUNY Graduate Center. He's written several books on slavery, anti-slavery, and the Civil War. And he's completing a book on Abraham Lincoln's anti-slavery constitutionalism. So I'm really honored to have the four of you. As you'll see, we're top-heavy with historians. And there's a reason for that, because I really would like the four of them to put this in historical context. Uh, uh, these two know everything about Reconstruction and the Andrew Johnson impeachment trial, which I hope they're gonna talk about. Uh, and uh, Liz has, uh, of course, intimate knowledge of what happened with Richard Nixon. And Karen, i just like to hear what you have to say about anything. <laughs> okay, but she's, she, no, she, she's a, a historian of the law. And I think she's gonna be able to put some of these things in a political and legal perspective because if I could just very quickly try to frame the, frame the debate, nobody has to follow my lead. Uh, but I saw the most remarkable conversation between Lawrence <coughs> Tribe and Robert Bennett. Lawrence Tribe, the constitutional scholar at Harvard, uh, and Bennett uh, maybe most famously as part of the defense team of uh, Bill Clinton in his impeachment trial. And essentially, the question of whether or not we should impeach Trump. Has gotten sort of narrowed down, I think, unfortunately, to a, uh, a black and white sort of uh, uh, a choice where someone like Tribe is saying, who was previously opposed to impeachment and then has come around to favoring it because of the, of the Mueller report, says, look, if you don't do it now, when would you ever do it with all this uh, prima facie evidence of, of uh, obstruction of justice, particularly? Uh, and yes, It's almost certain that uh, Trump will be acquitted in the Senate if you impeach him. But it's important that every senator be put on record as voting to acquit him. And this is something just of historical and ethical importance. Bennett, on the other hand, says, I understand exactly what uh, what Tribe is saying, and I even agree with him to, to a large extent. But this is the quote. He says, sometimes. For the benefit of the country, you have to rise above principle. <laughs> and by by which he means by which he means, assuming uh, you lose in the Senate that Trump is acquitted in the Senate, it will somehow make a martyr of Trump and make it more likely that he's reelected. Now I find that uh, those parameters a little su- suffocating. Uh, I think there's more room for discussion, and I'd sort of like to start out if we could with, the, uh, with Brenda talking a little bit about what could actually happen in a uh, Senate trial because this assumption, which is, you know, they said 95% certain he's gonna be acquitted. I mean, it doesn't give much credit to the lawyers or to the, or to the politics or to the, uh, the possibility of something uh, unexpected happening in a trial.
2: Well, except that what you're talking about, the unexpected – Can we hear? Yeah. Can, can you hear me? Yes. Is it
1: working? Talk, speak into it.
2: Okay, the unexpected that would uh, happen, what you're suggesting is that uh, the Republicans in the Senate would then vote to convict Trump. And given the times that we live in, it's, it's very unlikely. Um, but I just want to mention two things in, in relation to that. Specifically, um, just before I came over, I heard a little bit of news which, which amused me. Um, I suppose the right word is amused, uh, either amused or depressed. I'm not exactly sure which the difference is anymore. But in any event, that was um, interesting, let's say, uh, to me, Trump was quoted today when he was asked about impeachment, You know, whether he might be impeached or how he felt about it. What Trump said was that he didn't think that the courts would do that, and that was astonishing to me (laughs) because he so clearly didn't understand the process of impeachment, which is a trial, as you're suggesting, in the Senate. In the case of Andrew Johnson, um, there were seven senators who voted uh, to uh, acquit Johnson in Republicans, you know, and the Republicans largely voted to convict him he had been impeached in the house and the interesting thing about that and i think this is one of the one of the issues that rick is touching upon is the difference between understanding the conditions of impeachment as narrowly defined or as broadly defined narrowly defined impeachment is the actual infraction of a law in other words when Johnson Andrew Johnson was impeached he was actually impeached because he violated something called the Tenure of Office Act and it wasn't until he violated that particular act that the house overwhelmingly voted to get rid of him to impeach him even though for years they had been trying and because and, and failing to do uh, to do so on broader terms which had to do with his bigotry his abuse of power his obstruction of justice his ignorance of the balance of powers among all three branches of government and his racial politics so all of those broad definitions of what constitutes an impeachable offense failed in Uh, among people who really couldn't stand him and it was only when they got the narrow view that he was impeached in the house but he was acquitted in the Senate
1: right so Liz could you talk a little bit about political versus legal (laughs) impeachment in other words the justification for impeachment because you hear it's a fallback position a lot of of, uh, lawyers and politicians who say uh, look, uh, these are, this is a political question. It's not a, it's not a question that, be, that can be settled by the courts. But in the Johnson case, it was the violation of a law, a statute, that finally pushed people the But it was a edge. political question, But it too. was a political question, too.
3: It's hard to know where to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me say, first of all, that just to refresh everybody's recollection about this, Impeachment starts in the House of Representatives. House has to vote by a majority. If the House votes as a majority, uh, for articles of impeachment, they go to the Senate where there's a trial, Supreme Court Justice presides. You need a two-thirds vote in the Senate. The framers made it hard to remove a president from office. If we go back to Nixon's time, this may clarify the point about impeachment. People say, we want to impeach Trump. People say, should we start an impeachment? We want to start an impeachment. We're not going to start an impeachment. Impeachment is premature, blah, blah, blah. If you go back to what happened in the Nixon time, I don't. we didn't study the uh, Andrew Johnson practice in detail. We didn't start with an impeachment. We started with, actually, even before we w- got the authority to start we started with an examination of the constitutional grounds what does the constitution say by the way constitution says treason which is defined in the constitution bribery which is not defined but pretty well understood as a term and high crimes and misdemeanors which anybody is interested we can go into a longer discussion of that those are the grounds for impeachment When we started with the Nixon process, we started first trying to understand what the Constitution was. After that, the House of Representatives passed a resolution authorizing us, the House Judiciary Committee, to commence an inquiry, got that word? Inquiry into whether, I probably don't have the exact words, but this is the concept, into whether there are grounds for Im- articles of impeachment. So to start impeachment process in the House of Representatives, it's not to start an impeachment, you don't know, stand up and vote, yes, Donald Trump should be impeached. <laughs> you start an inquiry. Okay, I think that's really important in terms of the process. The inquiry, I'm not gonna go into great depths about this, but I just wanna say in terms of, oh, it's a certainty this, and oh, it's a certainty that, and oh, it was a certainty that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and oh, it was a certainty Donald Trump was never going to win. Prophecy died <laughs> many thousands of years ago. So let me just say this: when we started the impeachment, just to inform the, you here about some facts, when we started the impeachment process in the House of Representatives, we didn't know whether there were enough votes in the House in our in the Judiciary Committee for impeachment, much less whether there were enough votes in the House of Representatives for impeachment, much less whether there were enough votes in the Senate. And yes, the Democrats controlled the Senate and the House, but part of the Democratic Party consisted of Southern Democrats. They are mostly, have been mostly replaced by Republicans, but their districts the Southern Democrats' districts were as conservative, not more conservative, than most of the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee. So, yes, the situation may be more polarized. We didn't have Fox News, so forth and so on. But there are a lot of similarities. And we can't really, I mean, part of the problem here is that people don't understand the terminology. They don't understand the process. Congress, the the leadership in the House of Representatives is very nervous about proceeding. This is very similar to what happened in 1973. The House of Representatives did nothing, refused to do nothing. Of course, they didn't get up on TV and make announcements they were doing nothing. They just refused to do anything until the Saturday Night night Massacre happened and the American people said, we're not a banana republic and we have to hold the president accountable. I don't think people really understood what that meant. The only way we knew about accountability was to start impeachment proceedings, but nobody understood what that was either. So there was a lot of learning to do. But if you wanna start out by saying, oh, well, we don't have the end result. In other words, we're not gonna go to trial unless we know the jury's gonna convict. We wouldn't have trials in this country. We wouldn't have a legal process. Part of what's happened is, and I think this is a very deep issue, is that people have given up on democracy. They've given up on the idea that people can learn the facts, understand the facts, and support a democratic outcome. I don't mean democratic with a big D. They don't wanna see that. They don't trust that. So I'd be happy to revisit some of these points later, but that's what I wanna say Yeah, This is what
1: I'm trying to get at, what is so distressing about how narrow the debate seems to be. Impeach him and you help him. (laughs) That seems to be the argument. can you talk a little bit about this and also maybe put it in the, in the local context? I forgot to mention that we have more than one dog in this fight as Upper West Siders since our very own Jerry Nadler is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the House. So the question is, uh, how are we going to hold Jerry Nadler accountable if he doesn't move to push for an impeachment inquiry, for starters?
4: Well, it's hard. It's hard for me to imagine Jerry Nadler, maybe I'm just wearing rose colored glasses, not pushing for an impeachment strategy. He's been talking about this for a long time. A year a year ago, a year ago, in public, he talked about the um, responsibility of bringing an impeachment inquiry. So it's hard for me, you look at me like you did no. this. Mm-hmm. No. But that's what i think but can i just talk about the larger context of this um impeachment and why Please it's important do. and some of it riffs off of what uh liz holtzman says so you know you asked the question should we impeach him that was the question of today okay so i tried to come up with the reasons which i may not remember all of them but some of them all right and you're right they do have to do with. Um, things that are not just about understanding impeachment and understanding the law, or if we don't do it now, if we don't impeach this guy, who are we ever gonna impeach, right? Um, And so, there are a couple things. One is, there's broad consensus that he has at least obstructed justice, all right? You have 450 plus prosecutors signing a letter saying that, you know, it looks to them, yeah, I think it is. It's something like, it's, it's, you know, look, and on both sides of the aisles, not just a lot of, a lot of okay, so there's a, a so, so, so just put that in your head. You know, what does it mean to get away with this? Because everybody knows that there's instruction. You know. okay. So Donald Trump today said something very interesting in that incredibly lengthy interview that he did on the, the lawn. Hear what he said? He paused at one point and he said, you would not believe Article Two powers. You cannot believe how powerful the president is. Okay, so that is right. That's what he thinks. He thinks the president has untethered, unlimited powers. Why does he think that? He doesn't think that because he became president in, you know, in 2016, January 2017. He thinks that because he is not the first president to think that. And that's the context I want to put it in and why I think impeachment is so important. George Bush, who would never have gotten out there and said, you wouldn't believe how great these powers are, (laughs) he thought it and so did Dick Cheney. And between the two of them, they commandeered Congress and the courts to give up on their roles as balance of power uh, you know, partners and to allow the president to do things in, in that case in the name of national security that shouldn't have been allowed. Whether it was warrantless surveillance on Americans or torture in the American government or indefinite detention or de- the president deciding who an enemy was without any kind of due process, Some of these things ring familiar. So we never adequately push back on that. That doesn't mean that pundits weren't there, but no one ever said, this is not allowable. This is punishable. You will be held accountable. So the fact that we have a president now that thinks that presidential powers are, wow, you wouldn't believe how powerful we are. is So to me, impeachment is not just about Donald Trump. It's about the office of, of the presidency. Do you know that the first time that impeachment was raised in the, in the Congress about uh, President Trump was in December of 2017, a while ago. And, and what were the reasons? <laughs> the reasons really, I'm not sure you could get impeached for these, but one reason was uh, racism, right? Of course this was, def- uh, and the other reason was he demeaned the office of the president. That's right. He's demeaned the office of the president. George Bush demeaned the office of the president. Obama failed to do the things that could have set it back on course. And and the, the fact is, we need a, a, re, a reinstatement of what the president is, what he should be, and what his limits are. And that's what impeachment can do. And so I, you know, the, I think that's a really important um, part of it. So um, I could go on, but I can stop there.
1: Well, and we'll give Get Jim, a, uh, Jim, I want you to talk then about proportion proportionality let's say historical proportionality because the question still arises or for me it does does the reckless abuse of power by trump rise to the level of johnson's <coughs> or nixon's in other words johnson he's 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 being impeached in a political situation where the you've just had uh, 600,000 people killed in the civil war and he's actively subverting Abraham Lincoln's reconstruction program, to some, well, yeah. to a, Congress. Or Congress's, Congress. yeah, Congress's reconstruction program, right. re, the Republican uh, reconstruction program. So arguably, the stakes in 1868 uh, are higher than they are now, because Trump is a buffoon, he's reckless, he's demeaned the office of the presidency, he's, he's obstructed justice. But compared to what Johnson's doing in, in that, at that time, or even to what Nixon was doing at the uh, in the early 70s, does it rise to the same level in terms uh, of gravity?
5: I doubt it. I don't think it, I, I think coming off of a civil war when the issue is the reincorporation of these states that had spent five, four years attempting to destroy the United States. And now nobody's sure whether or not they we're going to be able to reunite the country in any reasonable, peaceful way. Yes, the, 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 those stakes aren't here right now, but the issues are remarkably similar. Like Johnson demeaned the office. He, you know, he was publicly disgraceful. He, he misbehaved. He was a, th- he was, you know, he, his language was abusive. He, he abused the the uh, individual congressman, um, and and he systematically as Brenda said, he systematically subverted the laws that Congress had passed in similar ways to what we see Trump doing with the EPA and the State Department and going through the bureaucracies and systematically and deliberately destroying them, which is what Johnson was doing with the Reconstruction Acts. And he, you know, he vetoes the laws and then he attempts to, he fires the people who are supposed to implement the laws and he replaces generals who won't implement the laws. and, And then he finally, finally does actually violate a law. The thing, the issue that was so difficult back then, which is whether all that abusive behavior and the abuse of power uh, was enough to justify impeachment, I don't think we have that problem right now. I think, as you said, there is plenty of evidence of an actual criminal behavior on Trump's part. And that's not even talking about other things like violations of the Emoluments Clause, Uh which if we ever get those tax returns, we're likely to Uh see things like that. So in that sense, the behavior is similar, although the the context is different. I mean, the stakes are pretty high right now, but they're not as high as they were back then. But still, the issues are very, very similar. They're very, very similar. and the behavior is just as troubling. And That's it's right. about the Congress, too. It's about his determination to overrule what con- congressional prerogative and, and ex- extraordinary claims to what he could do as president versus what Congress could do.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not arguing for, uh, that it should be strictly proportional. I'm just asking whether, it should, whether it's, it's something that should be taken into consideration because there's this uh, amazing historical coincidence that uh, in the case of Nixon and in the case of Trump, the original investigations begin as a result, as a result of an, of a, of an attempt to penetrate the Democratic National Committee. Uh, Nixon with the Watergate bur- burglary and Trump with the uh, hacks of the uh, DNC emails. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if I understand you correctly, both of you, uh, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't turn on the question of historical importance. Because uh, Bennett seems to Bob Bennett seems to be saying, "Let's let it slide for the good of the country." In other words, we have a much better chance of throwing him out I- at the ballot box than we do of uh, winning a trial in the Senate.
3: Well, I, I just want yeah. to make one point: the Framers had a debate on this actual issue. Sorry. Uh, and by the way, um, the case for impeaching Trump, I lay out some of the grounds that could be. Uh, used for impeachment, even though it was written in September, it's mostly still totally relevant, um, uh, probably completely relevant. But the idea that um, the framers had this debate—why have impeachment clause at all? That's exactly in there. They had this debate. Somebody wanted impeachment. I don't remember who first proposed it, and then there was some very prominent. Uh, opponents said, well, who needs it? We've got an election, people don't like the president, he's out. They didn't think she, he's out. And people said, oh, no, hold on. Look at what damage the president can do in the period of time that the president is in office. They, and so the people who said, let's wait to the next election, they lost that debate. They lost that debate in the actual framing of the constitution. Because Congress was, framers understood the damage that could be done, and they put the power in the hands of Congress to try to preserve our democracy. That's what impeachment is about. It's not about a president who demeans the office, excuse me for those who think it does. It's not about a president whose policies we don't like. It's a, po- it's a president who threatens our democracy. That's what impeachment is about. And abuse of power is really high crime and a misdemeanor can be. A grave, serious, abuse of power that threatens our democracy, that threatens liberties. I mean, we can give the examples from the Nixon impeachment. Nixon, And and by the way, (laughs) one other misconception. You do not need a criminal act to have an impeachable offense. You do not. I'm going to repeat that in the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon, and that's the only impeachment process that ever worked in our country. And that has never been challenged and has withstood the test of time. There was not one mention of a criminal statute in any of the articles of impeachment, nor was there any mention that Nixon violated any criminal law in his conduct. So let's put aside that is the precedent in terms of determining what a high crime and misdemeanor is and what an impeachable offense is. So let's just put that, in my opinion, out of our minds. If we look at what, what Nixon did in terms of abuse of power and why it's relevant today, and I do discuss that in my book, Nixon in his, there were, two, there were three articles of impeachment. The third article was about refusing to give us documents and tapes. Uh, sound familiar? <laughs> We didn't get them, and those people who say, oh, you go to an impeachment effort, you'll get the documents, you'll get the tapes, blah, 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 we didn't get them, <laughs> okay? We didn't, we had to, I mean, Nixon turned over some documents, but he didn't turn over dozens. So that was one of the articles. This, the first article of impeachment was about what I would call the cover-up article. You might say obstruction, but I don't like to use that word because it brings in the criminal dimension, and we didn't believe in that or think that was necessary. But that was all the things he did to cover up the involvement of his campaign in uh, the Watergate break in What did he do? He fired the special prosecutor. That was one of the grounds. Sound familiar? Secondly, he offered pardons, presidential pardons, to the Watergate burglars. Sound familiar? An explicit ground for impeachment just as the uh, firing of of Cox was. The other things that he did was when he knew people, when he knew somebody was testifying falsely to the Senate, he didn't correct the testimony. Sound familiar, Michael Cohn? I mean, you could go through his conduct and match it up directly against articles of impeachment. The problem is, in my opinion, what's happened is that Congress really does not have a strategy now, in my opinion? What Congress has to do is take this Mueller report, your version definitely, <laughs> and translate it for the American people. No one's gonna, most Americans are not going to read the 440 pages. I don't know how many in your book. They're not going to read it. Most people do not know the facts of the Mueller report. They don't know the misconduct, specific misconduct that would constitute an impeachable offense. That is what Congress needs to do now. They have to put the key witnesses on. The American people can see them. They have to tell the story. That's what has to be done. And they have refused to do it. They're sitting on their hands. I don't really understand that. But that's what happened in Watergate. The American people... Senate Watergate Committee had hearings. John Dean was there. Haldeman Ehrlichman, the American people, could see what what the witnesses were, what the story was, and begin to understand the narrative behind it. But there's been no educational effort of the American people, but so and th- so that's what has can, to be done. But can
1: I just ask you that? you think Jerry is uh, falling down I'm on the job? I'm not putting
3: any names on this. I think that people have been caught up in the moment. They've been caught up in fighting bar, They've been caught in fighting subpoenas. They've been caught caught up in waiting for Mueller, yeah. waiting for Godot, all of those extraneous <laughs> right. things. They haven't <laughs> realized themselves that if they don't tell the story, you cannot tell the story to the American people through a report. Okay.
1: Yeah, so yeah, please, please, Karen. Yeah. So
4: I, I actually um, was going to say that to start with, that um, results aside, let's just put the results aside. Educating the American people about this is essential and I don't actually care what they call it to start with they could call it you know uh, democracy for dummies I don't care what they call (laughs) it but they should call it let's tell you what happened let's tell you why it doesn't work and why it's wrong and why this is an attack on our democracy and one of the things that's fantastic about watching a hearing is it doesn't get filtered through the pundits first Mm -hmm. so if you go to Fox News or you go to you know CNN they, you're already told whatever event it is you're supposed to be paid attention to. Do you remember how people were, those of us who are old enough, how our mm-hmm. eyeballs were glued uh, to Watergate and, and to, to the hearings? And, um, and it made a difference. That's how those senators peeled off. And so, don't you think? That well. That's what the, I mean, it was the educational value and the pressure it put on the, on the, uh, the senators. And so I, I 100% agree, and this is why this book um, is important but there's nothing like television to educate people in real time.
1: It's just that the kind of television we're seeing right now is full of uh, pragmatic talk and I, 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 I don't watch it all the time but I'm hearing the pragmatic argument against impeachment, the politically pragmatic argument against impeachment more than I'm hearing the education. And I want to come back to the historians and ask them because this was very much in the air uh, around Johnson. If Johnson's impeached, is that going to uh, hurt our? I mean, excuse me. If he's uh, convicted, is that going to hurt the real the election chances of the election chances of Ulysses Grant? And so the question I want to put to you is: After uh, uh, he's acquitted, and after Grant is elected, do uh, pragmatic do pragmatists pat themselves on the back? Uh, in in Washington and say see we were right we got Grant elected we got rid of Johnson uh, 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 it wasn't necessary to convict him I
2: don't I don't think they I don't think they said that necessarily but you're raising an interest but okay. you're raising an interesting point and I think it's a It, it it's, it's worth discussing to a certain extent because although I you know, completely agree with, you know, Liz and Karen, the first precedent was not Nixon because Nixon was actually not impeached. And so the first precedent for an impeachment was actually Andrew Johnson. Johnson, And prior to that impeachment vote, as Liz was outlining, the Judiciary Committee undertook those kinds of investigations that we're talking about into, in the first case, into his finances, and all kinds of things that actually turned up nothing, and were, in that particular case, um, in 1867 it was, it was the year before the actual impeachment, in that particular case, it was a way of burying the whole issue, because people didn't, nas- didn't necessarily want to go that far, partly because of what you're calling pragmatic concerns, which is an upcoming election, and the way that election is going to take place, and also because there were many people who were concerned with if Johnson was removed from office since he had been the vice president, who would then take office, and what were his politics in that way. So while I agree, and I think in the abstract, the principled issue is absolutely essential. I don't think it's possible in a democracy to separate principle and pragmatics, particularly because there is a question of election. And I do know from, I don't know now, you know, uh, in an ironclad way, but I do know in 1867 and 68, that part of the discussion about impeachment Uh, where everyone did agree that Johnson was abysmal for the country was what are we going to do? What is the best way that we can approach coming elections, congressional elections, as well as presidential elections? And what is the best way that we can go forward in that particular case while we still hold Johnson accountable? And hence, as Jim mentioned, Congress passed a series of reconstruction measures or measures like the Tenure of Office Act that were designed presumably to reassert congressional authority over a man who had been usurping authority in that case. And so that there were were several procedures in place in that particular context, which I think are interesting. And as I said, I, I would reinforce that, you know, I think it, I mean, I would love to separate pragmatics and, in principles, but it's it's hard to do in some
0: some instances. Kevin Baker's new book, *The Fall of a Great American City*, explores how extreme wealth is leaching the energy from New York and cities across the country. Join Baker and Harper's Magazine publisher Rick MacArthur for a discussion of the urban crisis of affluence on Thursday, November twenty-first, at Book Culture on Columbus. Learn more at bookculture.com/event.
5: But this is, this is a similarity, and it's also a, a difference between then and now, between the Johnson impeachment. Congress was controlled. Both the House and the Senate were controlled by Republicans then. The Republicans then were the good guys. Um, but they were split. Uh, but but they were split. and But because they were controlled, because the House and the Senate were controlled, they could respond to Johnson's actions with a series of laws designed to stop him from doing what he was doing, right. to stop the abuse of power. And as bad as it was and as consistent as his attempts were, it did work. I mean, they did not stop reconstruction on the ground. By 1868, tens of thousands of African-Americans were voting despite his efforts to stop that. So so they did have this other way.
2: But they had to impeach him anyway. That
5: It was this equivalent of the Saturday Night Massacre. He finally fires this guy who, against the law, and that tipped the balance they had and also this also goes to where we are now you said 2000 December 2017 they had been discussing impeachment and moving impeachment resolutions for quite some time before they finally got to this point where he did something that they could no longer hold off anymore
3: I I want to say that I basically agree with uh, Karen I don't care what they call it they just need to do tell the story they have to have a narrative and they have to tell the story. I'm not sure that they know how to do that because you can't do that with a 38 member committee. If we go back to Watergate, the Senate Select Committee had seven members and much of the questioning was done by lawyers. That's not something the House does. I wanna go back to the pragmatists because I think really, so-called pragmatists, they're not really pragmatists because if they knew something about history They'd know what the outcome was of the Nixon impeachment effort, and I'm sorry I said the Nixon impeachment. It was a sick Nixon impeachment effort. It, it, it was so successful, he resigned.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> what do you think was the electoral outcome of the impeachment effort against Richard Nixon? Anybody remember?
0: Democrats swept.
3: Swept. Yeah. It was an overwhelming victory in the November elections. Overwhelming victory. When we started in October 1973, we didn't even know that we were gonna vote for impeachment. Nobody, nobody predicted that. So anyone who wants to come and say, I'm a pragmatist and I know this is gonna hurt us in the November 2020 elections, they just, they don't know what they're talking about. I'll bring Sister Maria, read her an advisor, maybe she's got a better, uh, <laughs> insight into the future. But just to say that ignores the Nixon impeachment effort. And I think this is one of the important things and that's why it's really great we have historians here because the mind of the Congress does not go past, it does not go before <laughs> the Clinton impeachment. It stops there historically. And that was a disaster. And I think it's really important to understand why it's a disaster, I'll just say it in two, two words. It was partisanship over a matter that the American people never saw as a threat to our democracy. They thought Clinton's efforts were reprehensible, his actions, uh, you know, terrible, but they didn't think it threatened our democracy. And it was totally 100% partisan. Our effort wasn't partisan during the Nixon time. It was perceived as fair, as, as professional, serious, grave, um, and, and it worked. We had huge support for what we did. So I, I really, I really <laughs> rebel, bridle, at these people who say oh, it's gonna hurt us. And by the way, just stop and think about what happens if the whole story is not told. The Mueller story is not communicated to the American people. What do you think the story is that Trump is gonna tell?
1: Well, keep it, keep it Karen, but I'm just going to I'm going to force Karen to defend Jerry Nadler in a minute. <laughs> I'm a no, 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 I'm Karen, because I think she thinks that he's sincere about trying to he's get. Gonna come through. He's going to come through. But before we get there, uh, I do want to ask about about the Johnson impeachment again because uh, there is something se- that seems to be intimidating emotionally. Mm -hmm. psychologically intimidating to the Congress Mm -hmm. about trying to remove the king or remove the the chief executive Mm -hmm. even though he's just listed along with other federal officials Mm -hmm. and the vice president in the impeachment clause it's no Mm -hmm. big deal the president the vice president and so on and so forth judges and so on are are all subject to impeachment if they violate Mm -hmm. their their uh, duties and responsibilities I forget. I don't have the exact language in front of me Mm -hmm. what is it about impeachment that is so terrifying uh to these to these people in in 1868 67 68 were people as frightened by it and i'm just going to quote i'm going to quote brenda's uh, uh uh introduction here because it's a, it really does get at this question yes the johnson impeachment takes place in the in the context of reconstruction and this in this insanely bloody war however she's, I think you can, she's generalizing here about the whole question of impeachment. She says, then too, the whole idea of impeachment does not fit comfortably with the national myth of democratic, uh, the national myth of a democratic country founded in liberty with abundant space, opportunity, and resources available to all. Impeaching a president implies that we make mistakes, grave ones, in electing or appointing officials, and that these elected men and women might not might be not great, but small, unable to listen to, never mind to represent the people they serve with justice, conscience, and equanimity. Impeachment suggests dysfunction, uncertainty, and discord, not the discord of war, which can be memorialized as valorous, purposeful, and idealistic, but the far less dramatic and often squalid, sad, intemperate conflicts of peace, partisanship, race, and rancor. Impeachment implies a failure, a failure of government of the people to function and of leaders to lead. And presidential impeachment means failure at the very top. So is all this pragmatic (laughs) jargon and talk uh, 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 obscuring a deeper fear of of democratic uh, holding the president to account?
2: Well, no, I don't think I mean Benjamin Franklin I think said yeah. when when uh, impeachment was was being discussed it was um, he said it's the democratic uh, equivalent of regicide you know you and go, yeah. and that there's a certain way in which um, regardless of all the things we've said and the principle of position, that it is terrifying because it means that your ship can be um, – can you can make a mistake and the ship can be rudderless. And I think that that um, negative and anxiety-ridden uh, point of view is, is the point of view that, that we all feel uh, very much today, and it's, it's articulated. Uh, but I think there's another view of it as well, and since you're quoting me, I'm going to quote. Me too because <laughs> it's easier for that <laughs> you know because in that sense in the in the prologue of the book I am saying that I mean I am saying very clearly that it suggests we make a mistake and no one wants to uh, you know wants to admit that we've made not just a mistake but a grave mistake a, a mistake that <laughs> no no well you know <laughs> but I think Culturally, it's a very difficult thing. So after the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, as I said, failed ultimately by one vote, I said, I, I said you know, but um, that um, impeachment had not fully succeeded, um, but unless forgotten, it had not entirely failed. It demonstrated that the American president was not a king that all actions have consequences, and that the national government conceived in hope with its checks and balances could maintain itself without waging war, even right after one. And that the national government could struggle to free itself from all vestiges of human oppression. It had not succeeded, but it worked. The impeachers, and I'm going to skip down a little bit, the impeachers had warned the country about the policies, in this case of Andrew Johnson, but you can substitute whomever you want, um, about the policies as best they could, and offered to us, clearly and without apology, a cautionary tale, and they provided hope. So there's more than anxiety at stake here. For in an essential way, impeachment had accomplished what it had set out to do. It, it spoke beautifully and with far-sighted imagination of the road not taken but that could exist, the path toward a free country, a just country, a country and a people willing to learn from the past, not erase or repeat it, and create the fair future of which men and women still dream. So I do think that impeachment in that sense implies not just anxiety but hope, and it depends on, you know, what, what side of, of that psychological equation okay. one comes down
5: on. It. Sure. And th- that That there, there is a psychological shift that does take place. That's sort of uh, that, the the issue I mentioned when he finally does fire somebody, uh, th- the people who had previously resisted emancipation, uh, emancipation, excuse me. <laughs> that uh, to, uh, uh, that's what I study. Uh, the people who had previously resisted uh, his impeachment finally started saying, at last we can have peace. You know, at last we can get this. He's been terrible, it's been abusive, watching the abuse of power day after day, year after year, week after week, finally we've established a process that will bring some kind of peace to this disastrous situation we've had over the last couple of years. So that's going into the process, not simply looking back from the consequence of the process. And I think that's also a kind of pragmatic justification okay. for doing what Liz Holzman is suggesting we do. Mm-hmm. You know that, that it's, it's been a terrible ride for the last Couple of years, mm-hmm. and maybe this is what we need right. to just get things in order.
1: I would also make the argument that uh, uh, Trump has a better chance of being reelected if he's not impeached. I don't know why people aren't making that argument, but uh, I, I think he has a better chance of being reelected if he's not, if his feet aren't put to the fire and he's, he's not he's humiliated in, a, in an impeachment trial, but or an impeachment and then a trial. But this, the I just want to raise one other point about the Johnson case Mm -hmm. and why people are afraid Mm -hmm. to address this issue or why they might be afraid. Mm -hmm. And one reason is John F. Kennedy. I mean Uh I don't know how many of you grew up on Profiles and Courage, but it's a terrible, terrible distortion Mm -hmm. of the Johnson impeachment uh, trial. And Brenda does a wonderful job of demolishing the Kennedy narrative or the Theodore Sorensen narrative, which is more likely the, the case. Uh, 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 but he turned, as you, does everyone, did everyone read it in grade school or in middle school or whatever? Who, who can remember? But he makes, <laughs> he makes a hero of Edmund Ross, uh, the senator who cast the deciding vote in favor of acquittal, and says that this is a tremendously courageous act, On the co- au contraire, wouldn't you say, uh, Well, he said two Brenda? things
2: also. Not only did he say Ross was courageous, he said all the people who wanted Johnson impeached were maniacs, crackpots, diabolical fanatics. And that was, th- and that stayed, you know, until probably the 50s or 60s, I mean the 60s, really. That was the, that was the extant point of view. The other thing that Kennedy Sorensen said that just kind of blows my mind is that, and, and probably Jim's too, but you know, is that he said there was no, there was nothing fundamental at stake in the nation Um, vis-a-vis this this, uh, impeachment. And in fact, you know, last year, on the front page of the New York Times book review, there was a book being reviewed about impeachment. It wasn't Liz, it was some other book, you know, because there were a lot being published. And the person um, reviewing um, the... The book said, mentioned in passing the Johnson uh, impeachment, and said that it was a preposterous mistake. I mean, it wasn't a mistake. The actual, you know, nature and the and the direction of the country was at stake in that particular way. It wasn't a mistake, and it wasn't, and it wasn't organized by a bunch of fanatics. But you know, history sometimes has a way of, of. Altering, um, especially when we get away from things that actually people who were on the ground at the time. History has a way of of altering what it was that really did happen. So it's interesting, and that that profiles and courage, you know, point of view, stayed dominant for a very, very long time. It
1: immense immense damage, and I'm not yeah. going to give away. Uh, the best parts of her book, but you must spoiler read it. alert. <laughs> you must read it as a, as an antidote uh, to uh, to Kennedy, if nothing else. <laughs> but go ahead, please.
3: Yeah, I just a uh, couple points I want to make. First of all, while this is not the Civil War, still, what's at stake if the Congress undertakes an impeachment is an inquiry into two major issues. One is whether the president. You don't have to come to the same standard that um, Mueller did, whether the president conspired with a foreign government to undo a democratic election and don't have any doubt that this can happen in 2020. So if Congress doesn't do something about it, how does this empower embolden the Russians? So I think that's something to think about. I, I agree with the point that Karen made. And just remember this, the Nixon impeachment effort, even though Nixon resigned, because of the solid evidence, the gravity of the process, the non-partisanship or the bipartisanship of the process, permanently disgraced Richard Nixon. Let's not forget it. That record has never been challenged. Despite everything else he's done, no one's ever challenged that. So I think that's important. Uh, another thing about the Nixon impeachment that's worthwhile remembering too is that you know the american people can change their mind Ma- maybe they've changed since 1974 but let's go back to the election in 1972 when nixon was elected in ni- november 1972 partly because of the cover-up which was a hundred percent successful at that point he won in one of the biggest landslides in american history he didn't squeak through he, he didn't lose the popular vote by 3 million. He won in a huge landslide. I think there was only D.C. and Massachusetts who voted for him. Okay? Yet, and that's November 1972, but 10, 11 months later, 11 months later, the American people were demanding accountability after the Saturday Night Massacre which means that they had to change their minds. They had to say, yeah, <laughs> maybe we made a mistake. But they were prepared to countenance that because they understood that more important than anything else was preserving the rule of law. And I think that that's what happened. That's the other point that, that Nancy Pelosi and others make about impeachment. That's a divisive process. It'll tear the country apart, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, go back to, I again, That's not what happened in the Nixon impeachment effort. At the end of the process, the overwhelming majority of the American people supported it, including most Americans who had voted for Nixon had to change their mind. And what you not, it didn't separate us. It brought us together because what happened was the process made Americans understand that one thing that we shared as a nation, was a commitment to the rule of law over everything else. And that united us, and we discovered that in the process. So, I I mean, you know, a lot of people have to just put their minds, you know, exercise their minds, and go back just (laughs) two decades before um, Bill Clinton and learn some of the lessons from the Nixon impeachment effort, which should be able to guide us. I have said many times that they offer a blueprint for what we should be doing now. Uh, not to mention all the similarities in uh, the conduct, including the abuse of power, but I'm
1: not going so, to. So Karen, you want to say something? But I, I want to ask you, what's it going to take to get Jerry Nadler and Nancy Pelosi off the dime? Really? Because um, it, it, we, can't, we can't count on there being uh, another shoe to drop. We can't count on there being an equivalent of the passage of what's the, uh, Tenure, of the Tenure of Office Act. We can't count on that, and we can't count on there being Uh, another firing of a a federal official or a prosecutor that would...
4: Right, you mean, what is it going to take? Yeah,
1: I mean, what's What's it going to take?
4: I don't think... Nancy Pelosi. In the Democratic Party, what's it going to take? Nancy Pelosi is a different story, and I would defer to Liz about everything political. But my sense on Nancy Pelosi is that she is playing this very smart and very close to the vest, and that her, maybe I'm just hoping, but I actually think this, that her ideas, I tried, I tried, I tried, I wasn't going to go for it, but guess what? I'm going to go for it. And it doesn't have to be any major thing, it could be something as I, I don't think it has to be any major thing. I, I, I just want to bring up a couple of things. One, to the point about you know, feeling like failure, we made a mistake. Um, That's not going to happen now. We did not make a mistake. The election was (laughs) stolen. That's different. And if you can't play that card, that's another thing. I just want to come, just to your, you know, kind of getting around your question. So you know that guy Amash that did the the Michigan Congress? Oh, yeah. we keep meaning to mention him. (coughs) Did anybody watch that? It's very interesting how they reported. So reporters were going around the room interviewing people who were listening. And more than one person said, obstruction of justice? There was obstruction of justice in the Mueller report. Now, when you're watching that, you're thinking, what is wrong? So I, I, I do, this education thing is not just because I hang out in universities. It's actually, it's actually important. These people were stunned on camera. What are you talking about? We didn't know. So the question is, how do you educate people? I don't think it's gonna take Jerry Nadler anything to get there. I think he's ready. I think the issues may be, you know, to, to Liz's point, you know, on what grounds um, et I, I just want to point out something that we haven't quite said here, but we sort of suggested. This is a dangerous president. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's brought us to the brink of violence with a number of countries around the world. He's done that without consulting his State Department or his Defense Department. He's, like Johnson, annihilated a number of the bureaucratic offices that are responsible for, in my field, security, but in health and other things as well. Um, And he's dangerous at home as well um, in terms of what he's doing at the border, the way he's mixing up civilian military authority. I could go on, like, for three hours. So, I'm just saying, I think it's, I don't really care about the predictions of will this work, will this won't work. It, it has to be done. And I just don't understand why more people don't think that. And I do think m- more education, more town halls, more people educating is what it's going to take. And if it takes Nancy Pelosi to, to motivate people <coughs> to do that, um, that's fine. But it's, it's going to have to be done to, to individuals around the country.
1: Well, yeah, although I, I still I'm baffled because that there's not enough. There's not that we don't already have enough of a narrative. I mean, you just have to read a couple of paragraphs here. Uh, on you have to read. Yeah. Well, I mean, now. well, or you can have it. It can have it read to them on, on, you know, on 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 Saturday, June seventeenth, two thousand 2017, uh, The president called McGahn and directed him to have the special counsel removed. McGahn was at home, and the president was at Camp David. In interviews with his office, McGahn recalled that the president called him at home twice, and on both occasions directed directed him to call Rosenstein and say that Mueller had conflicts that precluded him from serving as special counsel. I'm skipping ahead. McGahn was concerned about having any role in asking the acting attorney general to fire the special counsel because he had grown up in the Reagan era and wanted to be more like Judge Robert Bork and not Saturday Night Massacre Bork. When the president called McGahn a second time to follow up on the order to call the Justice Department, McGahn recalled that the president was more direct, saying something like, quote, call Rod, Tell Rod that Mueller has conflicts and can't be the special counsel. McGahn recalled the president telling him, Mueller has to go, and quote, call me back when you do it. I mean, I don't, I don't know, it's, it doesn't take a lot of education to get, that, to get that one across, as far as I could tell. So uh, is there a problem with the Democratic Party that's, that's, that's uh, different from the problem in the Republican Party in 1868? You don't have to know the answer I, to no, this. I, I don't, mean, yeah. You know, it, yeah.
2: It, it, it took a long time. I mean, yeah. the Republican Party was, was was divided. Right. It wasn't, you know, we can't just say, oh, they were all this. They weren't all that. And there were a lot of people who were dragging their feet and, and didn't want this to happen. Um, and it was only, you know, when, you know, what, what uh, to use a sort of Trump analogy in a sense, when finally Johnson shot somebody on Fifth Avenue that they sort of, you know, to use his, and they did care in that particular sense. I mean it and it took that, but there was a kind of there was a series of debates and, and sort of Liz talked about this in a different way earlier about what are the conditions for impeachment. Yes, it's in it's it's you know, baked into the constitution, but even that is is not specific. There isn't exactly a roadmap that says you do this, you do this, you do this, you know, and this constitutes you know High crimes and misdemeanors. So it was it was th- partly that was those were legalistic arguments as a s- delaying Tactic and partly it was what you're all calling now pragmatic politics and it was partly because uh, Election was coming up and it was partly because as as Jim was, was saying Benjamin Congress was Congress had a certain amount of power and it was partly because I said as I said Somebody was standing in the wings not just Ulysses Grant, but if you if you got rid of Johnson you had somebody who was coming in who was one of those so called maniac crackpots, his name was Benjamin Wade, and he, he you know had terrible beliefs. He believed women should vote. I mean so this <laughs> was you know this was yeah. very scary to people so you know there were a lot of considerations in that particular so I don't think it's any different. What's different are the the means for distributing knowledge in a certain sense and even in a way when Liz is talking about the sort of blueprint under Nixon and the importance of the rule of law, it's not clear, and that's why I use the Trump on Fifth Avenue, that the country has that same kind of commitment to the rule of law and what will make people take notice of that, you know, really understand what treason might mean or what, you know, any of these kinds of abuses might actually mean. And I don't know if congressional... Inquiries and investigations would do it. I think that would be the way that they should start absolutely because because of TV But your point is nobody's reading the Mueller report. Well, it's you know? a
1: bestseller uh, of, well, But doesn't mean they're yeah. reading
2: it. It I, might mean I, they're buying I think,
5: it. I, th- I think <laughs> I I do think that I mean I, I came of age watching the Watergate hearings and mm-hmm. I went through that process and they were extraordinary And things came out because of because of the public uh, uh, while the investigations were going on that changed everybody. And it's true. It's a great idea. It's the best way I can think of to educate the people to what the problems with this president are. But there are other... Uh, the trial of Andrew Johnson backfired. I mean, it was, the, it was a long, boring... You know, It made everybody think they were just a bunch of windbags, and, and that public version of educating the American people didn't work. So I hope I, I do think we should have oh, these, yeah. these, uh, the, the, these public hearings. I think the way people responded to Robert Comey's hearings, right. I think that suggests how much people can be riveted to their TV when they hear somebody who is plausible, you know, describing what the president was doing. But it might not work. It, I, I hope it works. But you know, it 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 might not.
1: This is my last question, Liz. As a former prosecutor. Uh, uh, why it is that again? Don't you? Wouldn't you love to get McGann on the stand? Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd make mincemeat of. Excuse them, you? me. <laughs> they have
3: the Democrats have been in charge yeah. since January third of this year. Right. We are now in the end of May. Yeah. Five months right. have gone by. Where has McGann been? Now he's saying. I mean, they just issued a subpoena. What? Three weeks ago. That's what I'm saying. The, the, the strategic thinking has not been there. Yeah. Maybe it's because they don't want to get there. That's, I, I, you know, that I can't answer. I don't know why this is, hasn't been done. But the, but the <laughs> blueprint was basically set out, as I said, in Watergate, where, where the House Judiciary Committee did not do anything in public except the final debate. So we didn't educate the people until the final debates took place. The education about the facts came about during the Senate Watergate committee hearings. And when you talk about changing people's minds, I just want to remem- remind people, the number two person, the top Republican on the Senate Watergate committee was Howard Baker, a conservative Republican from Tennessee, conservative, moderate, but mostly conservative. And he was totally working with Nixon. And he said, you know something? I'm gonna ask these questions and they'll show the president had no involvement. He thought the whole process was a witch hunt. He was completely against it. He was there to, to, to sabotage it. And so he started asking these questions. What did the president know and when did he know it? He was sure the answer would be the president. Never knew, knew nothing about it, wasn't involved. Guess what? When he started asking those questions, the answers showed that the president knew and was involved. And Baker stepped back. Baker allowed the process to go forward. So, you know, do we know how everybody's gonna react to this? And the idea that we're gonna be so cynical about ourselves as a country, that we can't handle this? I don't know, we did that in Watergate. Maybe we can't do it now, maybe we can't save our democracy, but I think we can, yeah, we have a, to at least but try. It's a,
1: but it is, it is a defeatist, uh, it is a defeatist uh, attitude uh, to say that the best trial lawyers, the best prosecutors, the, bre- the best uh, uh, advocates in the country cannot persuade, how many, how many Republicans would you need to get two thirds? I don't know, if, if all the Democrats voted for it, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. How many? 18. That you could not persuade 18 Republican senators to vote for conviction. So, I mean, it's kind of a, it is to some extent a, a, a disavowal of democracy, or of, of at least of the legal process, I don't know. Anyway. But it, it doesn't, it doesn't
5: yeah. have to result in his actual removal, there, are, right. there right. are actual consequences that can follow from the process itself the process that, that itself. worked right. in the case of Andrew Johnson. He right. right. wasn't removed, but wasn't it worked. Right. It shut right. him right. up, it shut down his presidency, and it worked. And again,
1: Grant was elected, yeah. so that whoever thought Grant would be hurt by the, the conviction of Johnson was wrong. And right? Nixon quit. And Nixon quit. Okay.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get twelve issues for twenty-one ninety-seven, visit harpers.org/save.